Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. We've all felt the sting of being overlooked for a job. Often it feels like the odds are stacked against us. My response to these disappointments has always been that there are other opportunities. But that is not always the case, not for everyone, and sometimes the injustice is just too much for some. My guest today is Tu Lee, too experienced an extreme and very public case of being overlooked for a job. So I'm keen to hear how she managed it. Tu was in the box seat to become the federal member for Fowler when the Labor Party head office intervened and parachuted in Christina Keneally. Tu's the daughter of two refugees who fled Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. She's been living and campaigning in the seat for years. Today, she's a solicitor for the Western Sydney Community Legal Centre and a coordinator at the Marrickville Legal Centre. She's also a leader in the Vietnamese Buddhist Youth Association. To welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. And can I start by asking, how do you feel today, six months after what was a pretty tough time in your life? Well, first of all, Helen, thank you for having me on. Um, I mean, it's been a, a very quick six months. Uh, you're right, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, it was tough, I think, at the start, but to be fair, I would say that it's given me a huge platform um, and it's been a great opportunity. And I mean, I like to see the positive in things and I would have to say, you know, I'd, I'd have to to thank the circumstances, which really put a spotlight. And I don't think it's on me personally, but I think on the issues that I've worked very hard to champion, particularly as a young woman of colour from Southwest Sydney, um, I think that unfortunately it is an area that is a lower socioeconomic region of the city. And I think that within the region too, there are a lot of issues I see as a local person that doesn't necessarily get addressed by our decision makers and our leaders. So it's it's been a challenging couple of months, but I don't think I would change it. Well, that's right. And congratulations on the way you have handled it. And you're absolutely right. It, it has put a spotlight on the seat and the sorts of candidates that we choose for election. Can you maybe take us back a bit and just tell us how you got here today, um, including your parents' journey? Sure. So I'm I'm a Vietnamese Australian. Uh, my parents migrated to Australia as refugees after the Vietnam War. So I was born and raised here. I was actually born in Adelaide, but I grew up most of my life in Southwest Sydney from a very young age. So um, that's my community. Uh, you know, that's where I feel a strong sense of belonging. Um, and it's where I grew up. So I, I absolutely love, you know, this pocket of Sydney. I've grown up to to work and, and uni, go to uni um, outside of the local area. Uh, but I think it's an, an amazing melting pot of cultures, but also of experiences. And I think if... Um, the, the lockdown over the last two years has taught us anything, particularly 
you know, around the the common headlines we saw about a tale of two cities and the division within the city. Um, I think that that was really telling of the experiences of a lot of people who live in southwest Sydney who often feel abandoned by our decision makers. And so I, in my work that I do, so I, um, I work as a, a solicitor in the community legal sector um, and I also hold a position as a community development manager, I am always seeking ways in which I can personally uh, improve my community and have a positive social impact. And I just saw politics as another opportunity to do that, although those types of opportunities don't come around very often. Um, you know, I've often said it's not lost on me that it took um, an older white male to retire to even give me the opportunity to put my hand up for pre-selection. And so over the last couple of months and with the experience within Fowler and obviously it not working out personally for me, um, I see that obviously as a, a setback, but it's it's not something that I haven't experienced in the past in my career. So I think these types of challenges, it's, it really, once you sort of take a step back and are able to, to see the bigger picture, I think these are almost blessings in disguise to really help you learn and grow from these difficult um, and challenging experiences. At what point in your career did you become politically active? So I had started my career, actually, I, I, got a, I did a commerce and law degree and I started working. Um, I got a graduate role, so I started working in a, a global corporation. Um, and after that, I, I thought I wanted to pursue law, which was my other degree. So I did business and more commerce and law. And so there was one point in time where I did move and work in politics. So I worked for the local member um, in Fowler because I was quite connected in my community and wanted to to try something a little different. And the opportunity come up, came up to work for the local member. So that was sort of my first um, experience in the electorate office. But I had joined the Labor Party as a student at university. Um, I wasn't you know, a young hack or anything like that. Um, but I saw at that point in time, uh, the values of the party that resonated with my own. And I saw it as a, a vehicle in which we can have positive social change. And I thought that the values of the organ or the party resonated with my own. And that's why I joined back in uni. But I think over the years, it was just you know, through the networks in the party, um, my experience volunteering for various campaigns and such, and then going on to manage uh, an election campaign, a federal election campaign in 2019. Um, that was my, my real experience in politics and seeing it too as a real vehicle for change because it, it is a big responsibility, but our members and representatives do hold a lot of power and, and they are strong advocates for their community. So I saw that as one way in which you're able to contribute to your local community by representing their voices in parliament. So you're hopeful of being pre-selected um, for the Labor Party in Fowler. You're a very popular local candidate. You've got the backing of the previous member. At what point do you become aware that your pretty much dream run into the seat of Fowler is not going to happen? Well, I, I never expected that I was definitely going to be pre-selected. Um, at that point in time, I had announced that I was going to put my hat in the ring. Um, and so I had assumed that it was going to be a 
process where local members had an opportunity to vote, so a rank-and-file pre-selection process. Um, I always had known that parties and head office may decide to parachute, as they say, other candidates into seats, and they often make those decisions because they think it's, you know, electorally beneficial for them to do so um, and it'll increase their electoral chances. So I never assumed that it was a done deal for me and that I was 100% going to be the candidate. But I, I was quite taken aback because I had learnt um, about the decision from the party uh, pretty much the day of from the media. So I was bombarded with calls and uh, requests to respond to the media regarding what had happened and the decision that the party made. So it was quite a shock to me. I didn't really have much time to digest. So no one from the party actually had told me about it. No one from the party told you about it. That's extraordinary. Has anyone spoken to you since? A few people have and have reached out to me, but it's been, uh, well, to be frank, and, you know, I've been honest about the process from the start. Um, I conveniently didn't even receive an email invitation, and I'm part of the right faction, so it's Centre Unity, um, and I didn't receive the invitation to attend a meeting where Senator Keneally was endorsed as the candidate for Fowler. Um, so I, I think it was put down as an oversight, um, but who knows? I mean, it, it seems quite deliberate to me, and there are obvious reasons why that was the case, but it was already a done deal. I don't think whatever I said in the media or any advocacy or even, you know, if local members were outraged by the decision, it would have changed it. So for anyone who's not followed the Fowler pre-selection battle as closely as you and I, um, or particularly you, Senator Keneally is Christina Keneally, uh, who is a, a very high-profile candidate and she was brought from the upper house into the lower house via the seat of Fowler. Have you had any exchanges with um, Christina Keneally subsequently? Uh, I have actually. So she attended my local branch meeting uh, last month. So I, I did have a, a very small opportunity to say hi to her. I mean, she's a lovely lady. Um, I don't think it was anything personal. Um, for those who may not know, it was a solution to an issue that we had uh, in the party in the Senate and so, you know, as you mentioned, Senator Keneally is very high profile. And I would say, you know, thanks to her high profile that it's really given me a platform to be able to champion issues that are important to me and give me opportunities such as speaking on your podcast today. So I, I hold nothing personally against her. I had a, you know, a very short conversation with her, but I don't think that it's personally helpful um, or even career-wise, if I were to have ambitions in the future to ever hold personal grudges, it's politics. And unfortunately, sometimes it's a win at all costs and there's definitely, you know, no prize for second or third place. So um, it's, I think, detrimental to yourself if you were to hold any personal grudges or, or feel like that's the end for you. And I think that's the point that I wanted to get to today is to better understand how when you're at your age and you are doing everything right and you've got an ambition in front of you and you aren't able to achieve it, what do you do and, and how do you pick yourself up? So let's go back to that time. You've found out Christina Keneally is getting your seat uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. What did your friends and family do? And was the reaction of them part of the hardship of coping with the outcome? 
my friends and family were extremely supportive. Um, but I think, you know, to start off with, to even have that mentality that this is my seat and, you know, I'm destined for this, like that's almost sets you up for failure. They're my um, words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. But I think with anything, you know, every you, there are some things that are always out of your control as much as you plan for things, as much as you are well prepared, you know, there's something that could go wrong. And I think at the end of the day to blame yourself for it or to think that you could have done anything differently, um, you know, it's not very helpful. So I like to see things as a learning experience. You know, there were fair criticisms about um, me being too young, as they say, but I, I think they often say that to, you know, squash any sort of political ambitions of young people. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of things that they mentioned regarding my inexperience or whatnot. I would say no one before they go into politics has any experience to do with politics. I think it's about your lived experiences, your connection to community that really informs, you know, how you would perform as a representative. And so I, I think that, you know, that that period, whilst it was challenging and friends, family, my community were, were shocked by it because I was announced as you know, a candidate for pre-selection. So not the actual candidate, but just putting my hand up for pre-selection months before that. So everyone had known about it. And, you know, it wasn't that no one else could run. Um, I think personally, I would have liked a competitive pre-selection process because that would have given me an opportunity to prove myself and I would never want to be seen as, you know, a shoo-in as well. And um, I didn't expect it to be a free ticket to parliament or anything like that. And I think that's a danger in it too, considering Fowler. And if um, people don't know, it's considered a relatively safe seat, one of the safest seats in the country for the Labour Party. And I think it's it's dangerous to have that type of mentality, to think that you don't have to work as hard as if you were a candidate in a marginal seat. And ultimately, I think that when you have that mentality and communities think, you know, well, well, Labor will always win and, you know, other parties think, well, we'll never uh, win that seat. I think ultimately at the end of the day, it's the community that loses out because no one then um, cares about that community or chooses to invest in that community. So I think it's it's important um, not to sort of fall into those traps of thinking, you know, we're, we're sweet here, we're good and we're going to win anyway, so we don't have to work as hard. Do you think young men running for safe Labor seats would be told they were too young? Possibly, if it was to uh, equally quash their ambitions. Um, But I, I think, you know, there's always going to be, particularly when you want to enter into public life, criticism. Um, you know, both from people that don't support you and from those that do support you, regardless of where that comes from. I think it's important to to listen to it. Um, obviously, you don't want to take everything on board and, and some people are just nasty and out to get you. But I think sometimes to be able to listen to others and, and hear what their feedback or their perspectives are could be helpful too. So I don't think you go into this thinking that, you know, you're um, 100% ready or like perfect for the role. I think there's always room to grow and there's always room to learn no matter where you are at in your career. So I think, you know, as a young person, obviously that's probably one of the most common criticisms um, is that you're inexperienced and too young. But I think that, as I mentioned, people often say that so that you you think you have time or that you, you aren't as ambitious. But 
I wouldn't want that to hold anyone back regardless of their male or female. But I do believe that oftentimes young women hear that a lot more than young men. So you had a very strong idea that it was going to be a tough run to get pre-selected for a safe Labor seat. Why were you so wise about that? Was that from working in the member's office or did you have Labor Party mentors who were leading you through this particularly difficult process? Uh, Honestly, I, I think it was just from how I had grown up and, you know, the experiences I've had in my career. It wasn't the first time that I've been knocked back or overlooked, um, you know, for in this case and in the other cases, uh, you know, an, an older um, white woman. So I don't think it was something that I've experienced for the first time. I think being a, a young woman of colour from South West Sydney does come with its challenges. And oftentimes, you know, there are stereotypes or perceptions about me that I work have to work really hard to smash. And I think that my personal lived experience really just helped me respond to the situation because honestly, I didn't really have time to think ahead. It just happened very quickly. Uh, but I definitely think it was my upbringing and, and who I am um, as a, a young Vietnamese Australian woman of colour that really set me up to be able to react in the way that I did. When else were you overlooked? I mean, my career, um, I was already in a a leadership position, a management position, and it was quite similar where there was another older, wider woman who needed to secure her position. And so I was almost asked to step down uh, to make way for another person to take my my job that I was already performing. And so that had happened to me before. So when this happened in Fowler, I, I think that it was almost like deja vu and I'd had dealt with something like that before. So I think that really um, helped, I guess, to respond to that situation. I like that it helped and that it didn't really give you the shits. Um, what did you do? Did you, you were asked to step aside. So you did. Um, Well, I I did step aside, but there were other circumstances that essentially the program was shut down and it was beyond me. And I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the times I think you have to recognize that there are things out of your control. And if you try to manage and control everything in life, you know, that's, it's chaotic and you're not going to be able to um, achieve what you want to achieve. So um, I think, you know, growing up in a Buddhist community, I think also helped too with my mentality and my approach to to life. And, you know, I always believe, well, I know that things are impermanent. So because of situations like this today, and I'm obviously disappointed by the circumstances, doesn't mean that there's not going to be opportunities in the future. And like I mentioned, it's actually opened so many doors for me. So um, as I said, I have to thank Christina Keneally and her high profile for, for me to be in the position that I am in today. I should ask you then about your Buddhist community and at what point that kicked in in terms of your disappointment in both circumstances. And when did you turn to that or is that just part of your your everyday ritual? It's part of my um, who I am. So I grew up in a, a Buddhist community and I think I've always had a very strong sense of identity. I was very connected to um, my Vietnamese community and my my Buddhist, my religious community as well. And we, my dad, I grew up learning lots of different Vietnamese proverbs. 
And one of them being that, or there are so many, but one that my dad always drilled into me um, in Vietnamese, it's which means that, you know, every day you work hard, you can even turn uh, steel into a, a needle. And I think that that's really the the mentality that I've had in life is that you you keep going and, you know, things could knock you back, but doesn't mean that that's going to be the situation forever. Um, but if you kind of stop and feel sorry for yourself and mope around, then your situation is definitely not going to change. I'm very conscious about who I am and my identity as a Vietnamese Australian young woman. And it it is statistically true that people like me um, aren't in leadership positions. There's only a very small percentage of us, but I'd like to see myself, you know, as a a leader. And if I do make it, as they say, um, that I'd want to not just, a lot of people may do this, but shut the door behind them and not pave the way. I'd love to smash the whole house down and make sure that, you know, others who are like me who don't necessarily have the opportunities, the networks to um, get ahead, as they say, have every opportunity to do that and that there is equal opportunity and that fairness that we're always saying that we're fighting for and that we value in society. We're talking a lot at the moment about bullying and in particular in the parliament. And I mean, reason to think about that because Christine, Christina Cornelia is at the centre of a lot of that conversation. And I'm not particularly interested in that aspect of it. But what I am interested in is that bullying as a concept is now being weaponised in federal parliament and we've seen it on both sides of politics. And it's particularly interesting in terms of the way women navigate those difficult environments of persuasion, argument, and just plain survival. What are your thoughts around the use of bullying as a claim in either the workplace, but also in, in, in particularly in politics? Well, first of all, I, I just have, there's this thing about politics where it's almost like, you know, all common decency or the rules that will normally apply in the workplace just goes out the window. And I think bullying in all forms is unacceptable and it should be called out. But unfortunately, I think in politics is often this mentality that you have to put up with it and it's part of the game, if you could call it that, of politics. And I I just, um, I wonder why that's the case. I think that kind of culture has been cultivated over years um, and it, it's not nice and it's nasty and I, I don't think that it's susceptible in any other workplace. So it's a, you know, a huge question mark as to why that kind of behaviour seemed to have been accepted for so long. And I think you know, now and of course in the current context, I do feel like it's um, being politicised and oftentimes, you know, both parties would, would use anything to throw at uh, the other side to uh, discredit them. So I, I think in, in this circumstance, it, it may be the fact that it is politicised, these bullying allegations. Um, I haven't seen any evidence, but obviously there have been um, people that have come out and, and admitted or not admitted, but had mentioned these or brought up these issues. Um, but I think that overall um, it's unacceptable. And if it is the case that these allegations are true, it should be investigated. And I think there should be consequences for people's actions. So quite specifically, do you think freezing someone out is bullying? Oh, 
it's, I think, a fine line in terms of of how you do it. Um, I think within politics and a lot of times, as people say, you know, you have to have thick skin in politics because people will stab you in the back, probably stab you in the front sometimes as well. Um, and they could well do things like ice you out or ignore you. I think it, it can be considered bullying. I think it depends on the context. I don't think that because this is politics that it, it's more acceptable than in other circumstances. But what I, I do believe is that there needs to be formal mechanisms in which people can comfortably raise these issues. So where people do feel like it is bullying, um, you know, even if it, it might not eventuate too much or the the outcomes of it, um, you know, aren't as serious as they personally might think. But if they feel like that's how they're being treated or that they're being mistreated, there should be mechanisms for them to be able to raise that in a confidential manner and not have to consider the consequences to their own personal career because of simply raising the fact that they've been bullied. So I think that we need to be to do better in having those mechanisms in place um, and then having a thorough process to be able to investigate and get to the bottom of these um, allegations or claims by people. Because when I think about bullying when it first started to be talked about in the workplace, and I'm really, just to be clear, coming at this from a leadership perspective, so how do you manage it as a leader and how do you be a leader? And in the old days, yelling, screaming, abusive, that was bullying. And we were pretty clear about what that looked like and tend to be more male traits, not necessarily, it's a sweeping generalisation, but tended to be more male. And now we're in a situation where we're talking about the way women lead and, and work in very pressurised situations where there's a contest of ideas and where in this case, in one case, there's a lack of trust. And the way to deal with that has been if you take the allegations on face value, is to kind of not have much to do with that person. And that's been interpreted as bullying. So I guess my question to you is, you know, as a female leader, it's now, uh, I guess, quite stark that even the most acceptable traits of being polite but dismissive is now considered bullying. Do you see a set of circumstances where you've had to question your own behaviour um, in managing a situation that's uncomfortable or is conflict where it could be construed as bullying? Well, I, th- I believe that everybody has a, a right to feel safe and happy in the workplace and feel like they're included. Um, so I think that oftentimes, I mean, even if you might think that your behaviour is quite normal um, and that that's part of your management style or just how you are as a person, I don't think that would devalue how you make the other person feel. So um, it's it's difficult because I think that oftentimes, and not even in the workplace, just how you, you know, manage and deal with relationships in your life where, you know, you may say things and you think it's fine, but it, it could be quite critical or hurtful to the other person. Um, and saying nothing might be the kindest thing you can do. And yet that now, you know, is potentially, you know, regarded as something that is, just to your point, making the other person feel left out. So it's a it's a fascinating area we're in, particularly when you're talking about a, a very, very combative environment, which is the federal parliament. Precisely. And and that's why I believe that in a workplace, and that's inclusive of the, um, the parliament, is that there, there needs to be 
steps taken and, and formal steps taken for people to be able to um, confidentially and confidently be able to raise these allegations to their manager or whoever it is, or even an independent um, committee. And I think that that was a problem in parliament that it often is that if you're working in parliament, you're often then your your member that you're working for is your boss, but you know they're also pretty much in charge of everything. So you go to that one person and there's no external um, committee or even HR for you to, to speak to, to raise these things. So I think at least having those uh, types of policies in place is a, a great start, whether or not then whatever the, the context or the situation is, is considered bullying, then that would be thoroughly investigated. And oftentimes I think like anything, when you sit down with a person and you you take that opportunity to communicate and share how you feel or, or share how that person made you feel from their behavior, often that's all it takes. And, you know, we always talk about mediation as being the first step before you then take people to court even. Um, I think that that's really important to be able to sit down with that person, even if it means that you need an independent third party there to sort out the issue. And I think often that could resolve a lot of problems that we, we see in the workplace. I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast is thinking, why are we even talking about bullying in parliament? These people are big enough and ugly enough to look after themselves. What sort of leader are you? Uh, I like to think that I'm an an empathetic leader. Um, I don't like to necessarily be a commander, but I think leadership um, I see as sort of, you know, steering the ship. And I think when you, you have a ship, you know, there's lots of components to it, but everybody works together. And as a leader, you're the one that ensures that the ship stays intact and that you're on course to wherever it is that you're heading. Um, So that's how I would describe my type of leadership. Um, I I like to be as inclusive as possible. I think everybody has something of value uh, to to contribute and to share, uh, regardless of their position, um, regardless of their title within an organization, within a team. Um, so I like to, as a leader, really bring out the best in everyone and and see everyone as a, a valued team player. So I think that you can't really be a leader without a team. Um, so as a leader, I always like to put my team first and that includes ensuring that everyone feels included and heard and makes a contribution because I believe in in synergy. I believe that, you know, it takes all of us. It's not just the one person, but it is important to have a leader to make sure that people are on course and that we're all heading in the right direction. And and hopefully that's towards, you know, your goals or your objectives as an organisation or as a team. Six months on from your baptism of fire in the political um, universe, you've made excellent points that it, it has given you a spotlight. People know who you are. You're here today. Um, I saw you on the news last night. Um, what's the what's the future for you now? Where do you think you're headed? I mean, if I, if I knew, <laughs> then it wouldn't be so exciting. Um, but I, I think that I've always been very committed to to social justice. Um, I work in the community legal sector. So, uh, you know, I I don't work in this sector to make a million dollars, but it is something that I love doing. And I think it's important work and very impactful work in my community. And I just have always had a very strong service disposition. So I see that, you know, whatever I can do in my career, in my life, in my community, even in my personal life and in my personal relationships, to be able to, you know, make those types of relationships or, you know, the impact that I can have 
that's positive, that's, you know, enriching to people's lives. Um, that's what I always strive to do. So regardless of the impact of that, obviously in politics, you can have a much bigger impact because as a decision maker, you're making you know, life-changing decisions that could really help improve people's lives. And I've spent years um, you know, working as an organiser and we spent so much time you know, trying to map out who are the key decision makers and then working together to come up with a strategy so that we can make it really clear to decision makers, to our politicians as to what's important to community. Um, and, you know, oftentimes it's so difficult just to get your foot in the door to have a meeting with them. So I see being a decision maker and being in politics is a, a huge privilege and a huge responsibility. So if that's in the works in the future and the opportunity comes up, then I think that that's something that I would love to pursue. Um, but at the moment, I'm extremely uh, happy with where I am and the work that I do now as a community lawyer and working in the community legal sector um, and where the future takes me. Well, I think part of that is up to the party as well. Unfortunately, I think uh, with speaking out about what had happened uh, a couple of months ago, um, I wouldn't say had made me enemies, but there are a lot of people who aren't happy with what I had done but I wouldn't change it. I think that, you know, if I didn't speak out and I wouldn't have had it any other way. And I just re responded to the media and to questions honestly and genuinely um, and just told them what I believed in and what I stood for. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you're always going to get people who aren't happy with you for speaking out, but um, I don't think I had a choice but to speak out. And it's, it's, it bewilders me sometimes to think that a lot of people in the past and, you know, they told me you should have just done what everyone else done, had done in the past and just, you know, stay silent and wait your turn. But I don't think I would have been able to do that and it would have gone against my values to, to have stayed silent on that. Well, I commend you for it. And also there's advantages in being young and that is that they'll all be gone when you next make a run for parliament. So, Congratulations um, on everything you've achieved to this point and I'm going to watch your career with great interest. I strongly suspect we haven't heard the last of you, so thank you for coming in and chatting to us. Thank you very much, Helen. Appreciate it. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson. 